Um, man, I, I, I can't tell you the emotions I have just watching that video. Uh, Restore Church planted, uh, we started in March of 2019. If you're new to Restore, uh, we're, we're new here. Um, but what was so significant to Restore being what we are and um, just, the, just basically still everything you see was I spent a year in New Bern uh, preparing for our church. Uh, that year in New Bern, we came up with our mission statement, our, our, our vision, our name. Um, and it was just an impactful year. And one of the things that made that year so impactful was the congregation there gave me space. I mean, they, they, loved, they loved me well. Um, they offered help. Uh, they offered to take me on base here in Jacksonville. Uh, they offered to, to take me around Jacksonville. Some people live in New Bern are from here. And so, um, man, it, it was a great environment. And I was not an intern there. I was working solely for a church that didn't exist. So Kevin and Maya are leaving, um, they're leaving uh, Roanoke, Virginia, where Kevin is from. He felt God's call to go back to his home church. And I've been after Kevin for years. Dude, you need to plant a church. And so finally, uh, he's, an- he's answering uh, mine and God's call for his life. <laughs> um, but we're, we're so excited, man, for them to be here and to experience that. Here's... Um, there's a couple things I want to say about this. One is I want you to see part of the mission of Restore Church being lived out. Because from the very beginning, we wanted to be a significant role in a new church within three years. We're two and a half years old, and they're going to come and, and be here. Um, you can start right now praying for Kevin and Maya. Um, the, the next couple weeks... It's hard to explain leaving a ministry that you love to come start a church that doesn't exist yet and to move to a city you're not going to live in but for a year, which, hey, a lot of you are used to that. Um, So just start praying for them. Um, They're thinking Goldsboro, that they want to plant in Goldsboro. And a lot of you are like, why would anyone want to move to Goldsboro? Well, they said the same thing to us about Jacksonville. So uh, if you know anybody who lives in, in Goldsboro, go ahead and start Plugging the, you know, putting the bug in their ear. Connect them with, with Kevin when he gets here. Here's another way that you can connect. You can help Kevin and Maya. Pray about moving to Goldsboro. Uh, see if your job uh, moves you to Goldsboro. Would we hate to lose you? Yes. But, man, Kevin's going to be a great leader, great preacher follow. Pray about giving to Kevin. I'm not asking you to move your tithe from our church to his. I'm asking you to give more. Kevin has to raise 100% of his salary. That's what, exactly what I do. I raise 100% of my salary so it doesn't have to come out of the church budget. Our whole staff, uh, Kendra, she raises part of her salary. And so um, we raise our salary. Kevin is going to have to raise his support to be here for a year. So basically what he's saying is I'm taking, I'm taking this job where I'm getting paid for, and then I'm moving to Jacksonville to go ask people to support me as a missionary to be here. And so maybe you can support Kevin uh, financially, pray about going to Goldsboro, um, but if you go to Goldsboro, you got to keep giving, tithing back to Restore, okay? It's just kind of taxes, you know what I'm saying? Um, Kevin and I, our relationship started about, that was a joke, by the way, we're not after your money, but if the Holy Spirit's moving in you, I don't know what I can do about that. Uh, our relationship started about eight or nine years ago. I was a youth minister. I was still in Bible college. And there comes this kid. He walks on campus. And you can't miss Kevin when he walks in the room. For those of you that were at the banquet Friday night, you can't miss Kevin. Am I right? Like, he has just got this 
overwhelming personality. He wants to meet everybody. He wants to talk to everybody. And, uh, man, he's just a great dude. So in, immediately I recognize, man, this dude's got some, he's, I mean, to be a ministry, it does take some talent, take some initiative, some drive. And I was like, dude, I, I, I like that guy. So I was like, hey, will you come be an intern for me in my youth ministry for no credit and no pay? And he said, yes. A um, couple years later, ministry took us in different ways. I graduated. He, went, uh, he moved to the big metropolis of Creswell, North Carolina, to start a youth ministry there. And uh, throughout that time, he called me. He's like, hey, man, I'm, me and Maya are going to get married. I was like, dude, that's great. Will you be in the wedding? Of course I will. Well, a couple weeks out from his wedding, he calls me, and he is freaking out, man. And I'm like, dude chill, what's going on? And he asked me, he's like, dude, can you give me any words of advice? And I was like, I can give them to you, but you're going to forget them. That's what happens. You get all this advice for your marriage, and then you forget them until afterwards. You know what I'm saying? It's like, oh, mom was right. Finally. And now I'm not the epitome of marriage, and my marriage is not perfect, but me and my wife are pretty good at it. And uh, we're going to celebrate our 10th year anniversary next month. Yeah, I'm pumped about that. Thanks. Um, you can do it too. Just love Jesus and it'll work. Uh, and Kevin calls me and he says, dude, I, I just need some advice. So, all right, what's going on? He says, I'm worried that one day, not anytime soon because, you know, newlyweds. You know, y'all remember that first year of marriage? It's the craziest year. It's like you're like gross in love, you know what I'm saying? Like you're in the same room and you comment, you post on each other's Facebook, I love you so much. You're sitting literally across the room from each other. It's kind of gross. And then two days later, you hate each other, can't stand each other. What am I doing? That was the worst decision of my life. And then five minutes later, you're, you know, back in whatever you call that, infatuation. Uh, so not anytime soon after their marriage, but Kevin was worried about this. And maybe you can relate that one day he was going to wake up and not be happy. And I, I told him, he's like, dude, I'm so worried that one day I'm going to wake up and just not be happy, whether it's with my life or with my spouse or in my marriage or whatever. And I reassured him, dude, that's going to happen. <laughs> it will happen. You will wake up one day and you are not going to be happy. Now, pause for a minute. Give me a break and just listen. Married couples, you know what I'm talking about. You wake up one morning, and for no reason at all, you're just upset at your spouse. Maybe the day before, you spent all day fighting, and then you went to bed angry, even though the Bible says not to. And then you wake up even more mad. And then, by lunch, you forgot what you're fighting about, but you're just angry. There's going to be days, right, I'm telling him, where you're not going to want to be married at all. You're like, dude, I wish I could just go spend money on whatever I want and don't have to consult you. I wish I could just go hang out with my friends and I don't have to worry about you wanting to spend time with me. Yeah, I know, right? God forbid we spend time with our spouses, but look at pictures of everybody else married on our phone. There will be days where you don't like to be married. There's going to be days where you wish that you were just somewhere else doing something else. There's going to be days where you're in a fight and you're like, can we just end this? Fine, you can be right. <laughs> And this is what I try to tell Kevin, and married people, listen, single people who wish to be married, listen, marriage is not about single events. It's about the whole. It's not a sprint. 
It's a marathon made up of a whole lot of sprints and a whole lot of rest. Marriage isn't, the fight, isn't about the fight that you're in. Marriage is about how you as a couple can get through it better together. Marriage is not about small events. Marriage itself is the event. And we as couples and, and uh, married husbands and wives and people who wish to be married, we need to be satisfied in the fact that marriage is the event. Now, this sermon isn't about being married, but man, what a great parallel. Because I was thinking about John chapter 16. If you've got your Bible, find John 16. If you don't, we have some volunteers who will pass Bibles to you. Um, but they're kind of tired, so they might just throw them. No, I'm kidding. Uh, pass Bibles to you. Please, or, or open your phone and use the YouVersion app or the Restore Church app. And right in the middle, you can see Bible, and you just touch it, and you can find John 16. I was thinking about John 16 and this conversation, because I, I got to spend a lot of time with Kevin this weekend. Um, this weekend, uh, um, that conversation that we had right before he got married just, just kind of dawned on me. Because we live in a society and a culture where we have to be satisfied right now. We do not know what it's like to not be satisfied. Our culture does not know how to be bored. We don't know how to sit and not have what we just saw on the internet within two days. We live in a world where McDonald's has to make it my way, and if they don't, I'm going to complain until I get it my way, which makes me happy. And then I eat it, and then I'm not happy. <laughs> but we still go back, right? When marriages, uh, marriages end all the time, and we say, what happened? Well, I just wasn't happy anymore. This next one's even more sad. That one of the most iconic songs in the past 10 years is titled Happy by Pharrell. And it's sad because it's an indictment on how good or bad our music is in the past 10 years. Man, our, our society is obsessed with trying to be happy. We buy self-help books. We go to seminars. We listen to preachers who are watering down the gospel just so that we can be happy. Friends, listen, just stop listening. Can, can I just throw one name out? Please stop listening to sermons and sharing sermons by Joel Osteen. I mean, he sounds good and it feels good because it's a 30-second clip about how we, we can just feel better if we just do this. Or it's all about how God is after our happiness. And man, that's a twist on what God has said in his word, and we'll get to that in a minute. But we try everything to do in our life to, to be happy. We try to do what everyone else is doing to make, hap to make ourselves happy. We, all we want is happiness. And to be completely honest, if your pursuit is happiness, you will be left with the complete opposite. And that's discontent. The opposite of, of happiness is not sadness. The opposite of happiness is being not content, right? So um, I think, uh, you know, as I look around and I think about my own life, I think about what happiness looks like. 
we we know or, or we think we know what it's going to or what it's going to make us happy. Uh, let's talk about happiness for, for just a moment. I know we've been talking about it, but um, here's what happens when our pursuit is happiness. On one end, over here, we uh, pursue happiness and then we don't get it. Right? And then we keep pursuing happiness. We have our mind in our mind what happiness looks like. And maybe you do. Maybe it's, a, it's an ideal picture of a family, or maybe it's an ideal picture of your job or career or a house or, or whatever it is. And you have this picture, and life never meets the expectations. So what happens? Man, you, you just get frustrated. You get angry at life. You get dissatisfied, and then you just become completely pessimistic toward everything because you can never have happiness. Let's flip over to the other side. What, what is happiness on this side? Whatever it is in your mind. And then you achieve it. Are you okay with that? No, because there's going to be something that's going to make you happier. It's going to be something that's newer or shinier or more expensive or more pain. I mean, more pay. And so you're on this side thinking, well, I got that, but now I'm not happy. Why? Well, because our pursuit is happiness. And if you're continually pursuing happiness, you will never get complete happiness because happiness is fleeting. Our home isn't big enough. I don't make enough money. I'm not married. I can't find work. I'm just not happy. And so I, I want to maybe give you a different pursuit. I think for us as Christ followers, our pursuit should not be happiness. It should be joy. And that's what we're going to get to. So if you have John chapter 16, go ahead and find it. And I'm just going to catch you up to where we are. Remember the last 11 chapters of the book of John talk about Jesus' life. And really, it's, a, it's just a couple days. So those chapters just cover a couple days. Well, we are two days into those couple of days. Jesus in John chapter 13 spent time with his disciples. Remember washing their feet to have the Last Supper? John 14, they're still at dinner, and Jesus says, man, y'all, where I'm going, you can't go, but I'm preparing a place for you to live forever. At the end of 14, he says, all right, let's get up, let's go. And what Jesus is saying is not let's, uh, let's pay the bill and leave, but we're leaving this dinner, and I'm walking into eventually, and when we get to John 17, the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's going to get arrested. So John 15 and 16 are G is Jesus walking with his disciples, teaching them. So last week, John 15, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Check this out. They're walking in a garden. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Maybe he points to something dead, and he's like, apart from me, you can't do anything. And so last week, we talked about really pursuing Jesus and wanting to stay connected with him. I want to encourage you again. We're going through John kind of quickly. There's no way that as we preach through this that you can grasp every verse. So we're asking you to read the chapter ahead of time. So this week your homework is to read John chapter 17, which really should be called the Lord's Prayer. So we're at John 16. Jesus is on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane to be arrested and to taken off to trial. But on the way he's teaching his disciples. And this is what he says. John 16 verse 1. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will, put, uh, they will put you out of the synagogues, in fact. The time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. 
I have told you this so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. The end of John chapter 15, uh, Jesus showed, uh, it shows us Jesus telling his disciples that the world is going to hate them. It's never going to accept them. And, and I just want to say, if you're pursuing Christ, if you are a disciple of Jesus, the same is true now. Following Christ is not popular. Um, people will mistreat you. They'll not include you because of, of your pursuit of Jesus. Actually, that's exactly what Jesus says. He, he, looks, he paints this really gloomy picture for his disciples, and he says, they're going to put you out of the synagogue. And for these Jews who are listening to a Jewish Jesus tell them about this, the synagogue is the most Jewish place they can be. And he's like, you're not even going to be considered welcome among your, uh, among your tribe, like among your nationality. You're going to be ostracized. Then he says, people are going to try to kill you. You're going to be persecuted. As you read through the book of Acts, you see all those uh, stories pan out, that all the disciples are persecuted. Actually, every disciple except for John, who, who wrote this book, is, dies a martyr's death because of Christ. Um, he's just uh, ostracized to an island to just grow old and die. Jesus tells them that the people are going to hate you because of me. So they're going to be rejected. You're going to be filled with grief. And Jesus says, you're not even asking me the right questions because you're so full of grief. Jesus just told the disciples about how happy they're going to be. <laughs> He's letting them know about the things that they can look forward to. Disciples can look forward to social abandonment. They can look forward to physical persecution. They can look forward to emotional desolation as they seek Christ. And so almost as we talk about this, happiness seems like a little bit more appealing, doesn't it? I think right now it's a good spot for us to talk about the difference between happiness and joy. It's really simple. It's, it's simple in words, but it's, hard, it's harder in practice. Happiness is based on our immediate circumstances presenting itself in an optimistic way or like a pleasurable way, right? It's everything in our life working out the way we desire it to be. And so, of course, that makes us happy. But in just a couple moments, when all of those things don't exist, what happens then? We're sad, angry, mad, whatever emotion comes. But joy, which is different, is not based on our present circumstance. It's based on our future circumstance. It's based on our eternity. And so it is possible to be happy and not have joy. It's also possible to have joy but not be happy. Y'all, as I study Christ, as I study scripture and, uh, you know, I've been a pastor for you know, 11 years now, um, I, I truly believe this, that you cannot have joy apart from Christ because worry about what's next is always looming. Now, you can have deep and extended times of happiness. You can have extreme happiness, and sometimes we call that joy. But what happens when those, hap when those circumstances change? Then it's all, all of our life is based on our circumstances. And look, non-Christians have nothing to look forward to after this life. 
And so, apart from Christ, apart from, from having the Holy Spirit in you, uh, you cannot have full joy. And so, uh, I want to say two things before we move on. If you are not a Christ follower, um, maybe you're not a Christian at all, I just want to say, man, th- this church is perfect for you. Great place for you to ask questions. Um, this is what's cool. The worst sinner in our church gets to preach every week. <laughs> I, I get to stand in front of you and talk about the Bible. Um, look, no one is in here. No, you're not going to find a more imperfect group of people. And some of y'all were at the bar last night, so that says something. Um, this group is so imperfect that it's perfect. And we're trying to discover God together, and sometimes we do well, sometimes we fail, but we're doing it together. Um, so if you're not a Christian, I just want to encourage you that you will find joy. You're not going to find joy. I can't encourage you with that. Hold on, let me rephrase that. If you're not a Christian, I want to love you enough to be honest with you, to tell you your pursuit of happiness is always going to leave you failing. But if you want something that's never going to end, that will last forever, it's joy. It's, it's because you've been saved by Jesus. Now, Christians, stop pursuing happiness. Is it bad to be happy? No, but the goal cannot, the goal of your life cannot be happiness. We'll talk about it a little bit more in a minute. Now, to you guys who have been following Christ, who have joy, who knows where your eternity ends, put on your big boy pants for a minute, and big girl pants too. Um, Act like it. Act like you have the joy of Christ that you will live forever. And uh, this is a soapbox that I didn't stand on before, but I'm going to stand on now. Man, if you scroll through some of our social media pages, you would think we're the most miserable people in the world. And yet we have the only thing that will last, and that is a relationship with Jesus. All right, not in my notes, so I'm back to it. So if you're mad, get over it. Verse 7. But, truly, I, I did say put your big pants on and big girl pants on. Okay, so if you didn't, that's, that's on you. That's not on me. All right. Verse 7. But, he says, that's an important word here. That's a very important word. But very truly, I tell you, it's good for you that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he'll prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where, where you can see me no longer. About judgment, because the Prince of Peace now stands. Uh, the Prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can bear. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will speak on his own. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Verse 7 begins with this contraction uh, with the word but. In English, it's three letters. In, In Greek, it's only two letters. But it still holds a lot of power and a lot of significance in this passage. Jesus says, but very truly, I say to you, 
Jesus knows the picture that he's painted. And it's probably similar to what you're hearing me say. You're like, dude, this guy is so negative. I'm never coming back to this church again. Jesus understands. And he knows what it's like to follow him. It takes a lot. He knows that the disciples, uh, he knows that if the disciples are seeking happiness, that they're not going to get it mainly from the Christian life. Again, I want to say, be careful what you hear on television. Or, or if you're listening to a preacher online, make sure he's preaching the whole gospel. That there's, there is some happiness when you're following Jesus, but there's also a whole lot of pain that comes with it. So, in this next little section, hear me completely out before you make up your mind about what I'm saying. So I'm giving this with a little bit of caution, but it's completely true. Jesus does not primarily care about your happiness. Does Jesus want you to be happy? Yeah. Does he like it when you're happy? Of course. I mean, God loves to see his children smile. If you have kids, you know, watching them play together, watching them succeed. Man, I had so much joy at our volunteer banquet. You, you see some t-shirts that say, you know, coffee and set up and prayer and and all of that on some people's T-shirts. So what we try to do is honor all of our, all the people who serve uh, every year. And uh, and so we we try to invite everyone to that, and we had a great time. And uh, my son stole the show in the middle of the dance floor, and I'm like, whose kid is that? Because my kid hates attention. My son hates it when all eyes are on him. And I'm like, I'm so stinking proud of you, dude. Because I know you didn't get those moves from your dad or from your mom. You know, I'm up there like, hey. We love when our kids are happy. And God loves it when we're happy. But is that Jesus' goal for our life? It's not. It's not his primary goal. And I, I want to say Jesus couldn't care less about my happiness. Jesus cares a whole lot about my holiness about my pursuit of him. Matter of fact, he told the people who were going to follow him, the disciples, that if you want to follow me, you've got to pick up your cross and die every day. And I've got to tell you, dying every day is not fun. It's not fun. It's hard. Dying to yourself, we talked about last week, caring about other people before your, before your own needs, that's not fun. Sometimes it's not enjoyable at all. And then, that's why I say verse 7 is so important. But, but, Jesus says, there is an advocate and a helper that is coming. Jesus says that it's better for him to go than to stay. Because why? Because the advocate, the helper, will come. If Jesus doesn't go away, the Holy Spirit can't come. And why is it important? Like, can you imagine Jesus talking to his 12 best friends? And he says to them, man, this has been great. And I'm going to die in a couple days, or in a couple hours. But it's better for that to happen. So that the advocate, which we know the Holy Spirit, or the counselor, your, your Bible might say, is coming. Why is that important? Why, why can that even be, like, logistically better? Well, it's because Jesus is one man, one person, God in the flesh. That's great. Emmanuel, right? God with us. But he leaves. And then the Holy Spirit comes and can dwell in every Christian baptized believer. And so I just want to tell you that 
the, what Jesus just said about the Holy Spirit is that he's going to bring correct thinking about sin. That the Holy Spirit is going to give us correct thinking about righteousness, correct thinking about judgment, that he's going to guide us to truth, and that ultimately he's going to glorify Jesus. What does it do for your thinking about God or about the Christian life that it's actually better? I mean, this, when I read this a couple years ago, I actually didn't know, I mean, a couple years ago, like five years ago, I didn't know that this verse was in the Bible. I mean, how can it get better than Jesus? Well, if God is God and Jesus has the same power as God and the Holy Spirit is God and now the Holy Spirit lives inside of me. Man, if I want to be a disciple of Jesus, I need correct thinking about sin, like in verse 8 and 9. I need correct thinking about righteousness, like in verse 8 and 10. I need correct thinking about judgment. Like in 8 and 11, I need correct thinking about, righteous, uh, about truth, like in verse 13. And the disciple of Jesus wants to glorify him with everything we do, like in verse 14. And look, there are some days that I try to follow Jesus on my own power. And I think that, those, that at the end of those days, I look less like Jesus than when I began. And those days suck. If we're trying to follow Jesus without the power of the Holy Spirit, what, it's not happening. It's not happening. I want to ask you three quick questions that's going to help you invite the Holy Spirit into your life. And the first one is, are you inviting the Holy Spirit into your life? Now, Francis Chan wrote a book uh, a couple years ago called The Forgotten God. We, pre we pray to God, we teach about Jesus, but no one's talking about the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I would even go on to say that I don't think we're inviting the Holy Spirit into our life. And so are you saying, Holy Spirit, help me? My challenge to you is every day this week, start your day before your feet hit the ground. Holy Spirit, can you help me? The second question is, are you asking the Holy Spirit to help you find the sin in your life to get rid of it? Now, there's going to be some easy sins that you can find, right? All y'all are liars. I should say we are all liars, right? We, you can pinpoint a lie. You can pinpoint, uh, you know, like these sins you can see, but are you inviting the Holy Spirit to get into a deep clean, like get rid of your pride? Are you inviting the Holy Spirit to come into your life and get rid of your greed, your worry and anxiety? Are you inviting the Holy Spirit in to help you find the sin that's in your life? Not so that you can just find it, but so you can get rid of it. The third question is, um, are you asking the Holy Spirit to lead you? Now that one's going to get you in trouble. That's, that, that one's going to get you from Roanoke, Virginia to Jacksonville to Goldsboro. Ask the Holy Spirit to lead you is going to get you from Elizabeth City to New Bern to Jacksonville. But are you asking? Look at verse 16. Jesus keeps teaching his disciples. Jesus went on to say, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean? Uh, and then they repeat him what he said. Verse 18. They kept asking, What does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Verse 19. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, In a very little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. 
You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is brought into the world. Jesus gives this illustration about a mother giving birth to a child. I remember when Aaron was a few weeks away from giving birth to our first son or to our son Bowen. She's worried about everything that's going to happen. Maybe some of you moms remember how bad it's going to hurt. Uh, you know, how, how is this anatomically going to work? Um, but Aaron got some encouragement from some of the mothers and, and nurses and stuff. Is that it, yes, it, it's going to hurt. But they all told her that once you see him, once you see your child, all the pain goes away, right? Until the medication wears off. (laughs) Yeah, and then until they can start to talk. No, I'm kidding. Again, that's the best part. Um, But Jesus uses this illustration that it's like once you have the child, the, the pain is still there, right? It still hurts, but the joy that is present far surpasses it. So then Jesus keeps going. Verse 22, he says, so with you, so the same is with you as with that mother. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one can take away your joy. When does Jesus say that the disciples will rejoice? When they see him again. He could be talking about after he comes back three days later. After the resurrection. Or he could be talking about his second coming. But I think he's talking about like right then the resurrection that's going to happen three days later. When they see him, the disciples will rejoice. When will the disciples rejoice? After the resurrection. Why after the resurrection? Why, why will they mourn and then celebrate? Because then they see the power of God displayed over death. They see the power of God displayed over circumstances, greater than circumstances, greater than emotions or feelings. Once the resurrection of Jesus occurs, the disciples will rejoice. And it's through the resurrection of Jesus that our grief turns to joy. Um, Our mourning turns to dancing. Scripture tells us that um, uh, Scripture tells us that our mourning turns to dancing, our struggles turns turn into strengths. Our current circumstances they give way to eternal ones. Let's get even more specific. It's because of the resurrection that I can tell someone who's been tell a young girl a couple years ago at camp. Uh, she, she had been raped, and the first time she told anyone was at camp, and it was me. <laughs> I was like, I, I went, and we had a counselor on staff. He's a Christian counselor, and I brought him in, and I just listened to him talk about the resurrection of Jesus. It, it's going to hurt. You're, you, you, it's going to be a long time before you stop thinking about it, but one day, one day it's going to be okay. But it might not be here. It's because of the resurrection that I can tell a mother that she will see her child again. It's because of the resurrection that we can tell an abandoned spouse that there will one day be fulfillment. It's because of the resurrection of Jesus that we can tell a homeless man that there is a room that's been prepared for him by Jesus in John 14. It's because of the resurrection of Jesus 
that our circumstances do not define who we are. But instead, it's our eternity in Christ. Look at the end of this chapter. Verse 31, do you believe me now? Jesus replied, a time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered. Each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I'm not alone for my father is with me. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart because I've overcome the world. One author says it like this, in both Old Testament and New Testament, joy is consistently the mark of both the individual, the individual believer and the corporately the church. It is a quality, not simply an emotion. Being found in Christ, being saved by Jesus and baptized into him, it does not guarantee that we will be happy. But it does guarantee that we get to spend life with him forever. Matter of fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verses 21 and 22 says it like this. Um, verse 21 and 22. It says, Now it is God who makes both you and us stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. He set his seal, the Holy Spirit. He set his seal of ownership on us. And he put his spirit in our hearts. Tell you this. As a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come, which is our eternity. We don't have to worry about happiness in our life. But we do get to focus on joy, which is heaven. It's eternity with Christ. And the application here is simple, but it's difficult to do. And... It's really hard to keep a heavenly focus. So, just like we finished last week, I want to finish the same way by looking at Philippians. So last week, we, I, I was over here last, no, I was over there last week in the second service. I'll be over here. Um, Philippians chapter 2 is what we read last week. Philippians chapter 4 is what we're going to read this week. Remember, Paul loves the Philippian church, it seems like, more than any other church that he writes to in the Bible. And every, almost, almost every letter that Paul writes, he's in prison. And for Paul, excuse me, for Paul, every time he's in prison, he thinks that, um, he thinks that the next step is death for him. Almost every time, okay? So Paul's in prison. He writes a letter to the people he loves the most, and it's his last letter. Like in his mind, it's his last. He, he will get out of jail this time, but he doesn't know that. Not only is this the last words to the people he loves, but this is the last chapter. So he gets to the last letter, last chapter, and these are his final words to him. Rejoice in the Lord always. And I'll say it again, rejoice. What Paul's saying here, practice joy. Like, do it. Don't talk about it, don't just preach about it, but like, do joy and then he says, rejoice, like over and over and over and over. Do joy over and over again. And in case you weren't paying attention, Paul, if he lived today, he'd say, for the people in the back, I'm going to say it again, rejoice. Then it's like this ADD Paul sets in, and he writes verse 5. 
that kind of doesn't fit, right? He says, uh, let your gentleness be evident to all, for the Lord is near. How can we rejoice all the time? Like this Greek word right here for always, it means always. Mind blown. But all the time. How do we do that in a, in a world and in a society that just talks about happiness? How can we have joy? Well, Paul says, your gentleness will come through. When you're relying on your eternal circumstance and not your present circumstance, there's nothing to worry about. Your gentleness will ev be evident. Why? Because the Lord's coming soon. Now, this is what's interesting about the first, when you read scripture, and, and Paul says, the Lord is coming soon. He'll say it again in Thessalonians. They thought and they lived as though Christ was going to come back before their lifetime was over. They believed that at any moment Christ was going to come back. I wish we would believe and live like that. And so Paul says, the Lord is near. Y'all, just let your gentleness be, be evident to everybody. And when they say, why? Because Christ is coming. So I get to rejoice even when my circumstances suck because I've got Jesus. Don't be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by praying and pleading, but with thanks, present your request to God. We live in the most anxious society that exists. Not making joke because I am also anxious. <laughs> but it's like I would, I would be less anxious if I brought every prayer and petition to the Lord. Knowing that he's coming soon, that would allow me to rejoice all the time. Now these few verses are really hard to put into practice. But Jesus finishes that chapter uh, in John 16 by saying this. Do not let your hearts be troubled. But take heart because I've overcome the world. Peace I give to you, right? Look at how Paul ends this. When you do that, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Man, don't we need peace? <laughs> I think our pursuit is contentment to, be pe to, to have peace in the middle of everything that's going on. And if our pursuit is happiness, it's not going to happen. But if our pursuit is Christ and eternity with him, it takes all the work out of it. And all we have to do is do joy. Um, I don't know that Restore Church, we might have sang one hymn in our history. But I grew up in a church with hymns. Uh, first church I ever preached at, uh, I was the pastor of. We sang hymns every week. And so if you grew up in church and, um, and, and hymns were your thing, this will... Uh, Satisfy your soul for just a second, but I want to finish just by reading uh, the words of, of a hymn that we used to sing, and it's called Because He Lives. Um, and these are the words God sent His Son, they, they called Him Jesus. He came to love, heal, and forgive. He lived and died to buy my pardon. An empty grave is there to prove that my Savior lives. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because he lives, because I know he holds the future, all life is worth living 
just because he lives. How sweet to hold a newborn baby and feel the pride and joy that he gives. But greater still the calm assurance this child can face on certain days because he lives. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because he lives, I, he, or because I know he holds the future, life is worth the living just because he lives. And then one day, I'll cross the river. And I'll fight life's final war with pain. And then as death gives way to victory, I'll see the lights of glory. And I'll know that he lives. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. Life is worth the living just because he lives. Let's pray.